how we talk and communicate about data and facts is so often more important than the information itself if we want to achieve real change. And I know I and, and my, many of my guests talk a lot about collecting data and managing data and analyzing data and even visualizing data as a component of communicating it. But at the end of the day, all after you've done all of that, we still need to figure out how to share that information in a way that other humans get and resonate and understand, even if they didn't start out agreeing with us in the first place. So my guest today talks about his framework for helping correct false information that might be out there while respecting and honoring our shared humanity. Hello and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits everywhere. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannerings. I am thrilled today to be joined by Josh Grenowitz, the founder and chief narrative strategist from Odd Duck. So Josh, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about you and how you got to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm thrilled to be here as well. So yeah, I'm the, the founder and chief narrative strategist of Odd Duck. We are a storytelling for social change communication consultancy, and we're focused primarily on the mental wellness and population or public health space. Uh, and what we provide is uh, narrative frameworks. So if you picture a Venn diagram that overlaps uh, concept branding, messaging, and change management, right in the middle of all of those is narrative, is the story we tell. Narrative is one of the most effective means of changing culture, whether it's a capital C culture or a lowercase c culture. And so that's, that's really what, where the narrative framework, the narrative strategy comes in. We also produce content. So we develop comic books, interactive video games, um, workbooks, curriculums, strategic plans, narrativizing strategic plans, believe it or not. A lot of folks need that. Um, and then we, we also do um, training, technical assistance, and, and workshops around different themes. And that's, I think, one of the things we're really going to dive into today is a, a workshop that we've been doing around misinformation management. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that really drew uh, me to you to have you here. I think people might go, wait, narrative, what does that possibly have to do with data? But of course, it has everything to do with data. And, and one of the biggest things is, is your narrative factually true or not? And that's where we get into that space of misinformation. So I'd that's love right. to hear from you. How do you distinguish between true mis or disinformation and potentially just different opinions or beliefs? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. So Renee DiResta, uh, she's written a lot for The Atlantic. Um, she's based out of Stanford and she has um, a very useful sort of differentiation between misinformation, disinformation, politicized or weaponized disinformation, and then conspiracy theories. And where where do you know where do bits of information or or data fall on that continuum? So you know one of the things that I've talked about before and I like to point out is that usually the differentiating factor is intent, and and disinformation is often shared with the intent to have uh, either a political or a profit, or a manipulative kind of muddying the waters agenda. Um, misinformation can be shared with the best intentions by some of the most reputable resources. 
you know, we were talking before we jumped on that, like science never definitively says any one thing, except for like, you know, a few caveats like gravity, right? You know, a lot of it is just strongly suggested. And so I, I mentioned that because even at the start of the pandemic, some of the stuff that we, we believed that it was like patient zero was in Seattle, King County, they weren't, but we believe that. So even that is, is misinformation. But why I focus in on that is I was talking to you and worked with uh, an epidemiologist there. And one of the things that she shared is the fact that they felt like they were being hit by several fire hoses at one time. You know, not just drinking from one fire hose, but several fire hoses from one time. They had a long cold and flu season that they were coming out of. They didn't quite know what they were looking for with COVID yet. So they hadn't had that differentiated or spelled out exactly. And they weren't breaking down ethnic or, or racial demographics at the time that they were initially collecting the data. So by default, what they were sharing at the beginning was misinformed. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a CDC panel discussion and one of the diversity directors there was sharing with the audience that we still, to this day, right now, two years in, we don't have definitive numbers on the breakdown of race or ethnicity as it relates to COVID. And that's just by the nature of how data is collected. You know, I, I think that's the best way to differentiate is whether or not there is an agenda behind the information you're sharing, or if it's just the most factual, accurate, reliable information that you have at this point that is being shared. I think those distinctions are so important. And it is true as, as much as I am a staunch supporter of the essential nature of data and how much we need it, data aren't perfect. And science certainly is not perfect and scientists are not perfect. And we make mistakes, we do the best that we can, or we may just not have all of the information yet. The story evolves, the story changes as we get more information. So that distinction between misinformation and deliberate disinformation, I think is really important. And you also brought up an interesting one of weaponized information. Sometimes something could be correct, factually correct, but it's misused or misapplied. Um, so those are all really important factors, I think, around that, that misinformation and disinformation discussion. Thank you. So we also then get into the, the space, though, of where do we transition from maybe intentional disinformation to a, a belief, right? Like a strong belief that right. we disagree with or potentially a belief that's weaponized. How do you kind of get into that space of dealing with people who maybe have very strong, like almost to your conspiracy space, yeah, space right? Yeah. Some very strong beliefs that may clash or be supported, clash with real information or be supported by mis or disinformation. Yeah. So the first thing I, I want to say is that overall, I think as we sort out like how we're going to figure out this misinformation crisis and really information as a public health, which is what we're talking about right now. As we move forward and we, and we figure this out, I think one of the things we need is some form of the Hippocratic Oath for information sharers, for communications folks, for media, for journalists, and you know, fundamental to that, do no harm. So as we talk about that, you know, th th there's some misinformation or even some disinformation that's relatively innocuous or, you know, it gets into that the sort of belief systems or the underlying values. 
and that's okay. And we can, we can disagree and we can right. agree to disagree, right? And, and Bigfoot never harmed anyone. So we can Bigfoot kind of have never that. Harmed to our knowledge. <laughs> right. the best, yeah, to the to facts on the ground is it, the best to our knowledge, Bigfoot has never hurt anyone. And that's, that's, that's good to know. Exactly. So, but when we get into the territory where, you know, when, when people are being encouraged to drink bleach, which unfortunately and tragically is a real life example, right? There's a problem there. And there's a problem with that misinformation. Now, um, so that's that I think overarching, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I, I would um, direct your listeners to Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner, um, who wrote a phenomenal book called You Are Here, uh, which is a guide to navigating sort of the polluted uh, media ecosystem. And how do we sort it out? And what they do is they start with kind of some of the satanic panic, you know, crises that were happening throughout the 80s and then bring it up to speed. And what are the carryovers? What are some of the myths that are still being told and the misinformation that's still being shared? The other thing that I would say when you're dealing with it, you know, one-on-one or you're trying to have conversations, whether Thanksgiving's coming up, there may be a lot of family conversations around the, the dinner table, you know, around the holidays. One, one of the things that uh, Odd Duck has done um, throughout the pandemic uh, is that we've actually gone out and you know done some some work on the ground working with folks who did weren't adopting you know mask policies. We've had conversations to you know talk about how this relates to vaccine hesitancy and so on. When you're in that dynamic and when you're having those interactions, I like to say the the social work credo is something that um, I've found beneficial, which is meet people where they're at. So don't challenge their beliefs. Don't try to go fact for fact but try to understand where they're coming from. And and the motivator of so much of this and the shared humanity of so much of this is fear. We're scared. Fear hardens our kind of values because it deepens that threat if we don't. And that's where a lot of this is motivated from. So before starting with with kind of like a point for point data and arguing fact for fact, recognize and acknowledge the humanity and where emotionally the individual or individuals that you're interacting with are coming from. That's so powerful. And I think often too easy to miss. We see not the person, but their disagreement with us or their different position. I remember, gosh, now it must be a decade ago, I was having a conversation with a new father and he was concerned about vaccinating his his new child. Hmm. And you know, the public health side of me was like, oh my God, what do you mean you were thinking about not vaccinating your child? And you know, and he, he was expressing these concerns. He'd been reading about the concerns about autism and uh, you know, potential uh, poisoning for mercury uh, and vaccines. And I took a deep breath and looked at him and realized he wants to do what's best for his child. Yes, that's yes. what's driving this. And this, this goes back to it's not disinformation, right? He really truly wanted to do what was best for his child. And he was confused and concerned about things he had been reading. And so I, I started with that, as I said, I'm really grateful that you care so much about your child to read so much into this and, and to yeah. be so concerned. And, you know, it's scary to look at these risks, you know, for your child. And I tried to be even more open with all the possible risks. So he didn't feel misled, you know? So I said, look, there is a risk from vaccination. You know, about one in 100,000 children will have an adverse reaction to a vaccine. Um, You know, about one in a million will have a severe, you know, adverse reaction to the vaccine. Um, And I forget now, it's like one in 
10 million have like a near fatal, right? Like it's a, it, there is a yeah. small number that have a, have a really severe reaction to vaccines, but the comparison, right? That small, small number, you have to weigh against what are the risks of not yes. vaccinating. And yes. so then we were able to transition from that emotional place because we'd met in that same place yeah. to say, okay, what, are, what do the facts tell us? And then I said, it's still your choice. You know, you get yeah. to decide that. And, you know, on my end, the the risk of not vaccinating outweighed the risk of vaccination. But but you you have to have that emotional discussion first. So yeah, I agree that's, completely. That's it. I and I love I love the idea. I would I, just unpacking what you did. Like that 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 would be like a flaw in, in our workshops that would be exactly where we would want somebody to end up. Because it's very natural. The emotions are real for us too. And so it's very natural to be like, wait, what? Yeah. what are you kidding me but you know like we were joking earlier the science says and, right. and you know you have the same access to the science that i do so it, it's very natural yeah. to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction but you yeah. are absolutely like you you met him where he was you acknowledged his his role as a father and the underlying concerns about that beautiful beautiful uh, um, thank then, you <laughs> but then you introduced the data in a way that is super effective, which is juxtaposing. Here's, here's how I'm going to acknowledge your fears. I'm recognizing that some of the stuff you're saying is true and is statistically valid. Yeah. However, the counterpoint is that you are posing a much greater threat to yourself and to your, your, you know, to your child. Mm-hmm. Um, by not actually following through with this. And yeah. at the end of the day, yes, it's it's your decision and we have to respect, you know, your your civil liberties and and you know, I think just where where you kind of helped guide the conversation and ended up it's it's poetry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wish you had taken my workshop so I could take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> we can pretend maybe. But yes, I think that you have this conscious. I'd sort of bumbled my way through that, but you you list out a very conscious, intentional progression, right? From right. first with emotion, first with acknowledging shared humanity, and then an introduction of facts that you can both agree on, right? Start with the thing we both exactly. agree. We both agree there's a risk. Let's talk right. about what evidence suggests that risk actually is and the, the measure of that risk, right? In that right. case, but that we usually can find facts that we share. And then I could introduce some facts that Maybe he was less sure about. He Absolutely. had heard other facts that that I disagreed with, and and had evidence to support why my interpretation of them was was closer to the truth than his. And he was able to kind of get to there with me because I hadn't started with, "Well, you're just stupid." Right, right. Well, and there's another impulse, right, at a gut level, like we want to not necessarily deny the the facts that and the data that refute you know, what we're trying to argue, but to certainly play it down. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's not, re- that's not relevant. Yes. That's not relevant. And, and, and try to push that aside. Well, that does nobody any, like that, that does a disservice because by not acknowledging that sort of tension, you know, when, when, when that fact becomes discovered, it's all the more alarming, but it's a very natural tendency. And I'm seeing it in the public health space too. It's like, you know, our health professionals, are trying to deny the counterpoints just so that they can make the, the argument more effective. And it's like, well, it's, it's not as statistically valid. Well, it's, it's still, again, you know, to this father, it's important. And you're doing more of a disservice and a potential harm by denying that the, that, that, that data actually exists. Mm-hmm. So acknowledge that first and then have that conversation. 
I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and it is. It's, but we should acknowledge the emotion side. It's a human tendency. We want to downplay the things that disagree with us, and we want to strengthen and ex you know, almost exaggerate the things that do agree with us because it makes us feel more secure, Absolutely. too. I don't think data's ever, you can never separate science and fact from emotion because we're humans. Like, it's, welcome to being it, a human. It, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, and, and, and again, it's, it's just a very natural impulse. But it is one that as a storyteller, right, a data-driven storyteller, we need to be really conscious of those impulses so we can try to, yes. even if it goes off in the back of our head, we can rein it back in before we release it on the world. That's right. That's right. So this brings up a really great challenge, though. And, mm -hmm. and we've been talking sort of at the social level, so we'll start there, but I want to bring it down into the organizational level, too, which is who should be, then, the keeper of what's true, right? What's yeah. information versus right. what's misinformation versus what's disinformation? Who should be the keeper of that? So I think there's two things that I would love to see sort of play out. And, and you know, I'm not a policy guy, but where I would say, you know, kind of going back to some variation of the Hippocratic Oath, for information sharing that, you know, you, YouTube just made the decision and this was highly popularized even within the last, uh, you know, couple of weeks to limit uh, um, or eliminate um, mis misinformation slash disinformation relating specifically to, to COVID in situations where there is some form of, of malicious intent. I, I will say, I think truth is such a, a slippery thing to begin with, you know, um, and 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 I would argue that you know there is a, a broad continuum of truth based in values, um, and that we can't necessarily have like a definitive thing. Where the conversation, I think, should go is a if if information is being shared with with a, a malicious intent, with a negative intent, or with an intent that you know will end up doing harm, then that information shouldn't be shared. The other thing is that there's there's two touch points for that. There's our own responsibility um, and whether or not we share. And I've certainly, I've made the mistake of sharing misinformation, just not doing the due diligence and, and vetting it. You know, going back to the, you know, the emotional charge of a debate, you know, like you're like, oh yeah, well, take my facts, <laughs> you know, you know but, but also, you know, I think on a bigger picture, the, the keepers of truth, the, the litmus test should really be whether or not it's harmful. Is this, is this accurate? Is, is this information accurate? Is it to the best of our knowledge at this time? And will releasing it do harm? I mean, it's an interesting point that I hadn't thought about with the do, do no harm point though, because right, if we consider a lot of great advances in science and technology, it's very difficult to see the long-term ramifications of those. Yeah. Look to the CDC, right? Initially the CDC was recommending against masks because they I were would... very concerned about shortages, but that sharing that information at that time ended up having a much larger harmful effect long-term because it sort of, gave a lot more fuel to not wearing masks later on. And I think this maybe ties into also your movement around democratizing data, which is there is also harm in withholding information. And it can be difficult to know if you have something that's accurate, but you fear is harmful. It might be difficult to know long term. Will withholding that information actually have more harm 
than sharing it now. And yeah. so you also have a concept of democratizing access to data and allowing a broader group to make a decision about how do we interpret this information? How do we analyze this information? What do we do with that information? That's right. That's right. So I'll say one of the things I said, I said, you know, there are two things. And then I only gave you the one, which is so, so good save. <laughs> because that is, that is the second thing is, I think we need to get more comfortable telling more complex stories. And part of telling more complex stories is saying, this is what we believe or know to be true right now. But that may change or circumstances may change. And, and we need to leave some wiggle room so that we're not deterministic in everything that we're putting forward. So the masks example, I share that example all the time. That is a perfect example of you know, something that quite frankly was gotten wrong. By doing that and sending that conflicting information, the two things that you know, often get kind of lumped into discrediting everything about what we know about COVID is the mask, mask tensions. Um, or tensions around, you know, whether or not to wear a mask. And then the bits that I shared earlier of like the confusion about, you know, what was flu and, and what was, what was uh, mortality statistic related specifically to COVID or complications related to COVID and, and let's say not receiving cancer treatment. And so those complication of statistics actually has been weaponized in some ways, certainly politicized and used as a counterpoint in some of these arguments and, and added a lot of momentum and fuel to some of those, those counterpoints. That is certainly the, the second point that, and I'm, thank you, thank you <laughs> for circling back on that. Cause I, I, I certainly think that's valid. And there's a ton there. I mean, I, I think having the space and ability to hold a complex story and to tell and honor that complex story is something that, frankly, as a society and oftentimes as organizations, we kind of lose. We want the one truth, we want the one thing right. that we can think about, and we don't wanna to have to put the emotional effort, the emotional effort into living in a sort of gray and a bit uncertain space. That's right, that's right. And, and there's an insecurity to that level of uncertainty. You know, they've done research that is certainly true and we're seeing this bear out over this last couple of years, um, in periods of extreme uncertainty, you see increases in the number of you know, people who adopt conspiracy theories and the number of people who subscribe to more kind of fanciful beliefs or, or you know, even cult activity. I just read a statistic yesterday that the number of exorcisms has increased by more than 100% in the last couple of years. So the, the fact of like people kind of gravitating to beliefs that, that have certain kinds of exactness to them and that are more comforting or reassuring to an overall world, worldview is certainly, certainly part of what's playing out with all of this. And to circle back to one of the things we said before, I think one of the things that has really been missing from the broader debate about specifically with COVID, but we see it with a lot of things is that weighing of both sides and allowing both facts to, to come to the surface, right? To your point of how many extra people died because they didn't seek cancer treatment because of how we talked about COVID and how we practiced right. controlling COVID. Whether or not those losses to lockdowns and to our response outweighed what would have happened had we not done that, I think it's a place that we should be allowed to discuss, but we 
it, it doesn't seem to happen, right? We, right, it's right. like, no, 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 people will die of COVID and therefore everything we do to stop people from dying for COVID, that's what matters. And shh, about anything bad that happens right. out of that, <laughs> right. right? Right. I mean, and it's interesting, my husband's British and uh, in England, they're doing studies on how much harm have we done to students who've missed out on school. Mm. But I haven't mm. seen the same responsiveness to research that here. And again, yeah. it doesn't mean that our decision to close schools was necessarily wrong or not. But it's right. interesting when only one side of the story is being told. And I think it's back to our desire to have a simple, easy to understand, one-sided approach to something because that right. uncertainty is just so unsettling to us. So we're living in a very polarized time, mm -hmm. which, which increases sort of the determinism about certain, you know, certain beliefs or certain opinions. So people double down mm -hmm. and, you know, even, even, you know, it, it takes a lot to admit when you're wrong or when you've, you know, suggested something misguided. And so people double down on the mistakes that they've made or, or, you know, an overarching uh, mistake in policy or, or, you know, a one size fits all solution that, yeah. that has been rolled out. And I think that then to, to close to your second point is where the democratization can come in. Where, oh, yes. <laughs> and, and I understand, like, I, I get YouTube and big agencies wanting to really control information and say that we're only going to let out things that are true. Mm -hmm. But true is, as you said, so slippery. And so, and, and not always do these organizations have people's best interests at heart. Right? Right. They haven't necessarily taken that Hippocratic oath, or nor do we trust them to carry mm -hmm. it out. And so this idea of opening information up to the people and allowing more people a peek into that black box, more people right. as as a, much as they can approach the data and unprocessed or in its purest form and allowing them to say, what do we do with this? How should we look at it? And you have a great example right. of releasing dashboards and saying, are we looking at this the right way and getting that feedback from people who want to use that information or who are impacted by that information on how right. to actually do it their algorithms were working the opposite way. They were prioritizing some of the misinformation because it was compelling. They were, they were creating, you know, um, some, of, some of these echo chambers that were, you know, rabbit holes in the wrong direction. And it was only with things like, you know, Pizzagate and some of those controversies um, where it was, again, you know, the potential harm that they were putting out there uh, was was flagged. And again, Renee uh, DiResta, she, she's sort of been the canary in the coal mine with a lot of these things. And so she actually started with um, vaccine, some of the, you know, vaccine work and looking at, you know, vaccine versus anti-vaccine and how that was playing out in the algorithms on YouTube and, and across different social media platforms. And that's sort of how she got drawn into some of this you know, misinformation. Thing. The second thing is trust. Trust is fundamental to all of these arguments, to all of these discussions, uh, especially for organizations. So, you know, the, the, the government in the United States and elsewhere has not been the most trustworthy or reliable uh, uh, partner. Uh, when we, uh, especially when we talk about factoring in the entire history of the country, right? When I'm talking to public health officials from government positions, one of the first things that I say is you shouldn't be the one 
who wants to have the, the capital T trust, the one to, to be building all of these bridges. Some of this should be resource sharing and bringing the right people to the table, you know, not in a tokenized or a misrepresented sort of way where it's just like, oh yeah, we, well, we have all of these stakeholders here and, and those are our community partners and, you know, what they say matters. No, they should actually have you know, be brought to the table with actual influence and decision-making power and have weighted votes in, in these conversations and in the outcomes of conversations. Those things I think are, are really important. And then all of this as a preface to what we're talking about with democratizing the data, which is there's a tendency to be like, oh, well, that we have to be responsible for all of this and we have to get all of it right. And so we have a, a, a bit of a stranglehold on the data itself. Um, and whether or not we want to share it. And I've seen this play out in lots of, lots of areas, not just in, you know, related to COVID or in public health, but also in public safety. You know, law enforcement data is notoriously difficult to access, specifically in relation to the example that you gave that is included in our guide. One of the things that Seattle um, did, the example that I mentioned earlier, where they were just dealing with this deluge of, of, often conflicting data that they didn't necessarily have under the right lens um, was to create dashboards that they opened up for the community. And one of the first things that the community flagged was, hey, you guys aren't breaking this down by race or ethnicity. And so they were an early adopter in actually looking at the data in that way. And as I mentioned earlier, this is, this is now two years ago. Um, and they were able to get more reliable, more accurate data, looking at the impact across different communities as a result of opening that data up. When, when we talk about democratizing, I, I mix you know, democratizing data and creating data transparency, I think are two of the biggest, most fundamental things that organizations can do to actually engender and earn the trust of audiences and constituencies. And I think there's even an element of honoring the source of those data elements. Yes. Right? Yes, I mean, those absolutely. data didn't fall out of the sky. Organization that's stewarding them, even if they put most of the resources into maybe corralling them, they aren't the sole source of that information. That information came from somewhere. And most likely it came from individuals in the community or it came from like participants in their nonprofit or it came from you know, people outside of the walls of their institutional organization. And so to say, well, you gave us this data, but you don't get it back. I mean, that's what all the big tech companies are doing right now. And we're realizing how terrifying that yeah, is that we've yeah. really given up so much of ourselves. And they are now claiming they own this sort of trail we've left behind us. And right. so I think there is also in that democratization, it's not just getting the insight of people who are going to have a different view of your than you do. And that's really important. They'll see things right. you missed, right? That they weren't doing the fake out. And everyone said, this right. is really important. Right. And they went, oh, yes, you're yeah. right. It is, yeah. Yeah. right? <laughs> but that also you're saying, this is yours. This is from you. Right. So we're, we're stewarding it because somebody has to bring it together, yeah. but it still belongs to you. Well, Dr. Rhea Boyd, um, who is a pediatrician and a data geek. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, she has helped build um, and worked with a community information exchange to build like an anti-racist data framework. And what she's done and looked at is sort of this continuum of organizations who have predatory data impulses. And so it's, it's all uh, unidirectional, collecting data, 
um, on subjects and you know not sharing that out, not opening that up. And then if you go along the continuum, right in the middle are sort of organizations with a savior complex who are like, oh, you know, we're collecting all of this data, but look at the good that we're doing in the world as a result of it. And then where all organizations should be headed, according to Dr. Boyd's model, and I definitely, I, I drank the Kool-Aid part and parcel, um, is liberatory models. And so, you know, how can we actually use the data to liberate communities and to open them up? And that's, that's another um, one of the examples that I, I believe is in the guide is there's you know, a, a project in Minneapolis um, that, that certainly pre-existed the, the tragic loss of, of the tragic murder of George Floyd, um, but, you know, illustrative of some of those dynamics. And what the, what the program did, it, you know, they refer to themselves as the data squad, and they created data literacy for public housing residents by saying, what are the things that we want to work on? And the residents wanted to work on everything from walkability and ease of access to, you know, public safety. But one of my favorite parts of the story is you had two epidemiologists, public health professionals. They kept going to law enforcement. Again, this is pre-George Floyd and saying, we, we need access to your data. You know, the residents, this is public data. The residents want it, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, law enforcement was like, no, no, it's, 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 it's a threat you know, to the safety of our officers by releasing this data and so on and so forth. So both of the epidemiologists contacted the FBI who collects the, the national database and they both went through the training to become criminologists so that they could have the access firsthand to share with the residents in a meaningful and effective way to actually help drive some of the decisions that were made. And I think access to that information and sharing it outside of, of institutions and, and the police are not the only ones who are guilty of, of wanting to keep it. I mean, I deal in, I'm in the health sector and the number of times I've, I've heard you can't have that because of HIPAA and it just stops. Yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> yes, there are privacy and personal issues. I believe very much in protecting people's identity and there needs to be a point at which you don't just use that as an excuse to not have to share anything about what you do. Um, as an organization, whether you're a small nonprofit or whether you're a giant you know, community hospital in the center of, of the capital. Right. So I, I agree that I think that there's a desire to want to keep, I, I mean, it goes back to even our, we don't want to share things that might call out that we've done something wrong right. um, or even right. just be challenged. It's uncomfortable to be challenged. It's and a lot absolutely. of these conversations aren't happening with the emotional meetup. Right. It comes <laughs> right. out as an antagonist, it's an antagonistic relationship. And so right. who wants to share secrets with an antagonist? So there's a right. lot in there, but I, I completely agree with you. I'm very excited. We will be linking to your misinformation guide because I love it. I think it's awesome. really helpful. So we'll have that link in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. And where can else can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your incredible narrative work? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, oddduck.io. That's it. Perfect. Well, I do hope people go and check it out because I very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much, Josh, for sharing all of your wisdom and insight. Ditto. Thank you. And, and um, this, was, this was a real treat. Uh, you're an excellent interviewer. So well, thank you. thank you. Thank you. It's fun to have such engaging conversations. It's, it's easy to talk about all of this with, awesome. with someone who's so knowledgeable and has such great insight. So thank you so much. Wow. There was so much in this conversation. I know one of the things that I'm going to take away is that conscious construction of how we can talk with people 
who seem to have a false belief to us, or certainly a belief that clashes with the way that we see the world and the truth, about starting with that shared humanity, especially when we're both afraid. And that makes it even harder for us to really talk as people from the same place. So recognizing that shared humanity, often of fear, and then justifying the emotion that the other person, the other party is feeling by finding facts that you do share, whether it's both recognizing there's a risk that you would agree is there, even if you disagree about the quantity of that risk, or whether it's recognizing that action needs to happen, even if you disagree on the action that might need to be happening. And then once you have a recognition of the starting place, a recognition of a shared emotion, and a recognition of some shared facts, then and only then would you transition into introducing maybe some different facts or a different way of interpreting facts or some new evidence that might counter some of the information that your other party has. But part of that then becomes this really critical step of resisting our innate desire to quell or hide or even downright deny facts that complicate that picture or maybe even run a little counter to the point that we are trying to make. And understanding that we do often more harm by hiding facts and trying to oversimplify than what we do if we could acknowledge the true complexity of a situation. And really that was one of the takeaways, right? How do we do less harm with the information that, that we present and the way that we present it? Truth really is a slippery thing. I agree with Josh on that. We do each have a personal responsibility to think about the things that we share, even just talking to friends or whether on social media or as organizations, thinking about what information are we putting out there? How are we putting it out there in ways that might be harmful? Or what are we resisting putting out there that might also be quite harmful? How can we open our data doors and allow more people, especially people who've been responsible for generating that data, have access to it and have a say, you know, vote with weight on how that data is used and interpreted and shared to make change happen. So whether you're going to take this on as an individual or whether we're going, you're going to take this on as an organization in a way of managing your data, I hope that you get so many things to take away from this incredible conversation. And do check out Josh's work over at Odd Duck. Thank you so much for joining with us. And I would also ask, Josh actually found me after listening to my podcast and reaching out and saying he'd love to be a guest. So if you're listening to this and you have a topic you'd like to hear shared, if you actually want to be a guest, or if you have a question that you'd like me to answer and find an expert to talk about it, please go to the website heartsouldata.com, go to the contact us page, drop me a note. I love hearing from you. I love giving information and topics and episodes that actually really help people in this space. So thank you so much for listening and thank you for your feedback. You've been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Miraculous, an analytics, education, consulting, and data services company dedicated to helping nonprofits amplify their impact through data. Learn more at Marakinos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.